This week, our executive producer, Adam Gopeski, suggested we watch the 2019 film Serenity because he thought it was about Matthew McConaughey in space. That is not what I thought. <laughs> Anne Hathaway in space. But rather than force everyone to go to the theater to see one of the worst movies of the year so far, uh, we decided to watch the 2005 film Serenity instead. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first co-host. I am Adam Gobeski. I'm your producer, executive producer, and second co-host. And I'm Amber Elby, and I'm your third co-host. And this week, our guest wanted to watch the 2005 film Serenity, and that guest is Jill Dickinson. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. So you are a friend of our frequent guest slash co-host, Amber Elby. So she brought you I in. I am. Yep, I I am. And Jill is also a big fan of a lot of things science fiction. And she missed the time that Serenity and Firefly were big in the U.S. because she was in Japan, which is totally cool. And so I figured, I hoped that she would like this stuff when I invited her to join us here. Yeah, and I, and I did. I watched the whole series back to front um, while recovering from surgery. And it was awesome. And uh, now I've seen Serenity two times to make oh. sure I've got all my thoughts collected. All right. And uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed the movie. So this episode, I thought we start off with an interesting question that we're arguing about phrasing on. What is your favorite movie other than Serenity that is based on a television property? So what do you mean by based on? It is uses the same intellectual property as a already established television series. But it's not a remake, right? No, that's fine. I'm fine with or that. it is a remake. Yeah, let's leave it wide open. It is or is not so a you, remake. You just want some sort of unholy matrimony between movies and television. Yeah, doesn't everyone? I want there to be no distinction. It's the future of uh, media. Okay, Netflix. Who knows if it's television? Who knows if it's a movie? Steven Spielberg knows. <laughs> So who's going to go first? You, because you want to make sure no one steals okay. your uh, your your choice yeah. of uh, Sex in the City too. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first one was so good. Why not just make a sequel? But um, so based on Charlie's question, I'm going to go with South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Hmm. I actually don't know if I like it because I saw it when it was at the theater. But we'll say that I like it for the sake of argument. But if I'm going to just be contrary to Adam and reverse this and have a TV series based on a movie, I'm going to go with Tangled the Series, which I actually do legitimately like. It's on the Disney Channel. It's quite funny. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad right off the bat we can do away with the very broad premise <laughs> I set up for the question. <laughs> um, so the movie that I would pick would be Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I grew up in a Trekkie household. My dad was a really big Star Trek fan. And um, yeah, I saw the movie as a kid. It scared the shit out of me. <laughs> um, and as I, as I got older, I learned to appreciate the movie and Ricardo Montalban's gaping chest. Wait, so was it the chest that bothered you? Was it the uh, ear slugs? No, it, it was the ear slugs. Yeah, that still bothers they me. They showed it. I know they showed it to at, at my school to second graders. <laughs> we we were all seven, and that was our good citizenship movie. Kids were just tougher back then. I guess so. I don't know. It scared the pants off of me. Yeah, it's a uh, it's such a broad broad question. I have so many options. I'm not sure what to do because part of me is like, well, Star Trek is good. There's always the Naked Gun. Oh yeah, see, good point. But uh, I think I'm going to pick a movie that I saw recently that was so much greater than I expected. And and that is, believe it or not, Teen Titans Go to the Movies. <gasps> yes, that is such a great movie. It is mm, so good. Like, it's, it was so good that I, uh, I watched it and then I was like, oh, my gosh, Brianne, you have to watch this. And she's like, but I've never seen the show. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Sit down. Watch this. And so we did. And she was like, yep, you're right. That was great. Yeah. Adam's going to hate me for this one. But uh, one of the best movies of last year was Mission Impossible Fallout. Ghost Protocol was pretty good. I wouldn't say necessarily based on the rest of the series that I would have picked that one. But I love that movie so 
much that I don't know. That's my pick. Yeah, I should have picked Star Trek Beyond just to highlight how bad your review on Letterboxd <laughs> of it is. How appallingly wrong your Letterboxd review is. So Serenity is the story of one Dennis Serenity, who is a pirate in space. And he flies around trying to find his lost fortune, which is housed on a special haunted planet called Miranda. That's mostly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and they're cowboys, not pirates. Would you like me to try seriously? You're welcome to, if you'd like. Sure. All right. Serenity is the 2005 continuation of the short-lived TV show Firefly, which ran from 2002 to 2003. Serenity is the story of a spaceship named Serenity, captained by a person named Malcolm Reynolds, played by Nathan Fillion, who, along with his crew, engage in legal and illegal activities. They recently picked up a young woman named River Tam and her brother, Simon. River has been designed to be a powerful psychic and a dangerous weapon and it's feared that she may know something that would bring down the alliance that rules the part of space that serenity is located in so the alliance sends out an operative played by chuadal Ejiofor, to try and track down river before she can reveal whatever knowledge she has so jill you hadn't seen this movie before and what was it in particular about this movie that made you want to watch it for the podcast well Amber had said that she thought it would be fun for me to check out the movie. And after I saw the TV series, to know that there was more to the story was very intriguing to me. I personally think the experience is enhanced so much more by having watched the TV show. You get to know the nuances between the characters. I definitely wanted to see the movie because I did enjoy the TV series so much. So yeah, what were you expecting? What were you thinking this was going to be? So I definitely expected the stakes to be raised. I read a little brief synopsis of the movie before I watched it. And I'm just going to say it. I don't like the character River Tam at all. And so when I read the synopsis, I was like, oh, are you serious? River? (laughs) There are so many other characters I wish that we could have explored, you know, that might have these in-depth stories that would be a little bit more interesting than watching this helpless waif navigate through, you know, her own mind that she struggles to understand. And I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised. I liked the story that they made for her much more than I thought I would. So I noticed with your synopsis that you're referring to some things that happened in the series, in the TV series. Is it possible to think about this as a standalone film? Or do you really have to know the TV series going into this for the story to make sense? Uh, That's a good question. I am one of the people who watched the TV series before I saw the movie, not while it aired, because no one watched it while it aired, basically. I discovered it on dvd a little bit before the movie came out but this last time that i watched it i tried to watch it with an eye toward okay if i hadn't seen the tv series and just was coming to this movie would i be able to understand it and i think for the most part they cover everything that you need to know um the only thing that really stuck out to me was the appearance of the character of shepherd book who if you hadn't watched the tv series just seems to come out of nowhere and um, no, no, I'll just say it. Um, in the movie particularly, and perhaps also in the TV show as well, um, he gets dangerously close to magical Negro territory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Didn't even think about that. So I don't think it was just Shepard Book that kind of came in for almost like a cameo in the film. Inara isn't mentioned for a very long part of the movie. And then she does come in. It's kind of like, who is this person and what's her relationship to Malcolm? And also like Kaylee's my favorite character from the TV show. And she wasn't in this sufficiently. But I have a, I have maybe more prejudice about uh, shortfalls with character development in the film because I saw it without having seen the TV series when it came out in 2005. I saw this at the theater and like knew that the TV series had existed, but didn't have access to it because it was before Netflix, or at least before I had Netflix. So I watched the movie and was confused for quite a bit of it, but liked the dialogue, 
And then I was taking a TV writing class at grad school and all of my friends were talking about Firefly. And so then I finally got a hold of the TV series, like probably a year and a half after I saw the film. So I was trying to figure out who everyone was and how they were related to each other when I saw the movie for the first time. So the series is a good entry point for the movie, but not necessarily the other way around, because it took you a year and a half and other people talking about it to even think about visiting it. It did. Well, and it's hard to go back to where there's a character who is very charming, as like Wash is very charming, and you know that he gets taken out. So you're watching the whole TV series being like, well, crap, he's going to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess I don't even remember when I first watched this. Adam, did you make me watch... Like I want to, f- I feel like I watched the movie before I watched the television shows, but I don't really know the context anymore. Is um, this something you made me watch? Probably, because that's the sort of person I am. I always make <laughs> you watch things, and I'm better for it. Um, my experience was um, our friend John Dittmer mentioned how good the show was, and so I think I just bought the DV set on a whim at some point and watched it and was like, oh, I really enjoyed that. And that was probably in like late 2004. So when the movie came out, I was like, oh, yeah. And so I went to the theater. I'm pretty sure I went with people. Don't know if you were in part of that, Charlie. You may not have been. And then what about you, Jill? Were you aware of the show before Amber introduced you to it? Yeah, I'd, I'd heard of it. And um, I knew Nathan Fillion was a big deal on the show. But beyond that, I didn't know anything about it. So when I got the DVD set from Amber and started watching it, and I was like, wow, this is like cowboys, but in space. (laughs) It was wildly interesting. You know, it very much in a Star Wars. Star Wars is kind of like a cowboy samurai movie. This had less samurai, but a lot more cowboy to it. I feel like we do lose some of the Western quality when we have it in the film. Like Serenity has a lot more space special effects just because they have a budget. I noticed and that it, too. Yeah, I, like there's not a single cow or horse that I can think of, but they don't have like the cattle rustling and things like that they do in the TV series. Yeah, the TV series has entire episodes set in desert sort of Western locales, whereas here we get it just a little bit. I mean, I guess we have that first bank robbery scene. Yeah, like yeah, it's pretty Western. But yeah, I don't think the presence of livestock is what makes or breaks a Western. So <laughs> Right. No, it's more like the uh, the sprinkles on the Sunday. But we're talking about the 2005 movie Serenity, not the TV show. So Right. But I think we're trying to prove whether or not you can talk about one without the other. Well, I hope so, because uh, the TV show wasn't required viewing. So I do like it, but not as much as the television series. Yeah, so the television series ran... I think 11 out of the 14 recorded episodes in its original run. And out of order. Yes, shown out of order, didn't get particularly good ratings, and was something that the Honest DVD release really got a lot more traction with fans. But because of its original run and the very devoted fandom that it had, this movie is somewhat forced to do two things at the same time, which is be something truly new and interesting for the fans, but also introduce somebody to this universe that they may not be familiar with already. And you can kind of tell that Joss Whedon wanted to cram a whole lot of stuff in it that was probably important to him that would have been spread out over a season or two had the TV show been running still. And so it has a feeling of like, and let's stick this in and let's stick that in uh, just to say that we made it on film. Oh, right. We should probably mention that uh, Firefly and Serenity are both the creation of Joss Whedon. And this is, in fact, his first feature film that he directed. Oh, that's true. He was a he'd been a writer for a long time. He wrote the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer film and, of course, helmed the series. But also a lot of other things like Roseanne. I think he wrote on Toy Story. So he's behind the scenes on a lot of things that you might not necessarily know that he was working on. Through the 90s. And he wrote Dollhouse, which rewatching Serenity, I was like, oh, the the doll who comes to life like that was in there. Oh, yeah. What did you think about the introduction of the film that we get sort of a like movie within a movie within a movie for the first like uh, five or six minutes? It ends up the teacher talking to the children, which ends up being inside River's Head, which ends up being a video that the Alliance is watching after the fact. Oh, See, I got it as a memory in River's Head and then must have lost the whole Alliance connection to it. 
Yeah. But it must shift at some point because if they knew what was in River's head, they would have known what information. Oh, yeah. There's definitely a shift. Yeah. Is Joss Whedon trying to dispense with as much exposition as he can without having to Mm -hmm. go too far? Like, we could see them going up the elevator and getting into the ship, except he's like, well, we know they're going to do that anyway. So let's just go to the next scene. So I found that a reasonably clever way to get through as much as possible quickly and to keep it from being boring. But what do you think? I thought it was a good introduction. I thought it um, wrapped up what you needed to know about the universe and the previous war really well, even though it was definitely from the perspective of the Alliance talking about how great they were. But yeah, I thought I thought it was a pretty good introduction to kind of what was going on and indicating to uh, the person watching that this is a story about River. This is River's story. Sure, there are other people in it, but I feel like the story really centers around River and what's going on in her mind. Mm -hmm. And it also does a good job establishing that you're not really ever sure what's real and what isn't. At the beginning, the Reavers are set up as being these kind of aliens that come and attack people. And we know from the beginning that we shouldn't really believe everything. So it makes you wonder, and then it pays off. Well, they're not really treated as aliens, right? I mean, Jane has the speech. It's like, what makes a man like that, right? Uh, like, I don't get it. So we think the movie managed to find that balance between explaining what sort of universe that the characters are in and building a new story. It builds a new story really quickly. Uh, it has a very quick pace throughout to the point where... I would have trouble doing anything else and watching this film because you really do have to stay on top of the storyline, which is part of why I feel, too, that it was an entire season or two seasons of a TV show crammed into just under two hour film. I did feel like each person's story at certain points were almost fighting for attention um, because there is so much to the movie. But yeah, I, I agree with Amber that the movie could have been season two and it, it was dense with action. You know, it wasn't meandering or going off the mark or leading you down weird stray paths. Um, you know, there's chunks of action and story interspersed through the movie that um, could really be broken down into smaller bits, I thought, pretty successfully. I mean, I have to say that I never got this feeling that this was, oh, this is a TV show that they compressed into two hours instead of, you know, 10 hours or whatever, right? Like, I just never had that sense. I don't know. Maybe it's because... There wasn't a lot of downtime. It was very go, go, go with the plot. Maybe that's why I thought you've got this goal here for the characters to accomplish. And then there's no in-between time. Right when it stops, there's a new goal set up. And I was thinking, too, when it was happening, that some of the transitions between the problems were too easy. And I'm sure I thought this because I just saw the Lego, the new Lego movie yesterday. But they have they had a part in it where there was this plot device that just helped solve problems. And I was thinking like, oh, it feels like Serenity has a plot device too. I mean, it's called like the plot device. Uh So that's why it's funny. Amber, we know from previous episodes that you're a big fan of dialogue. What'd you think about the dialogue in this movie? It's definitely unique. Yeah, we actually did study the dialogue for this in in my TV writing class. And my professor is a huge fan of it, um, partially because... With Joss Whedon's, we called it tight writing. Uh, He always enters scenes late and ends them early. And he always has a really strong line at the end where he's like, it's like a mic drop moment where he's like, that's my line. And he moves on to the next scene. And so you end up with these little clever zingers quite often. And it's Jane who delivers quite a few of them. And he does it so perfectly. Um, But it ends up adding a lot of humor uh, and humor in a unique way. Like, I can't think of another film that has the same degree of humor combined with a kind of archaic tone and use of language and then obscure references that I am also greatly entertained by where uh, there's one point where Mal refers to the rhyme of the ancient mariner but he doesn't say it he talks about the albatross and like explains what the albatross represents uh, and then he just turns to Inara and says yeah I've read a poem and I, I love those little <laughs> things, too. They reveal a lot about character and they make you care about the characters more. And Joss Whedon's aware of this, where it, it shows Wash saying uh, his line about a leaf on the wind and he's successful. And then he lands and he starts to say it again. And then he dies before he can finish the line. So it's the things like that that I actually get really excited about. Um, I think 
stylistically, it works pretty well. It it's a nice uh, effort to show how a uh, particular community might develop linguistically and have its own little quirks, right? Like so, like the interjection of Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, and such into the English and uh, things like that. Um, it is very stylized, though. I know there are people who really dislike Joss Whedon's writing in this and Firefly as a result. Like I know um, the uh, uh, artist Chris Straub, for instance, really disliked the way they talked on Firefly, and so would parody it in like his own works. <laughs> it's funny, just because it doesn't feel naturalistic, like a language that right. would actually evolve. Right. It's a it's a very um, specific way of talking. Like so, he parries it by having a character who just will never say the last word of a sentence. <laughs> Okay. And and so watching this movie, I noticed there's a couple times where like Mal won't say the last word of a sentence. <laughs> but that's because the previous character said it. It's playing the dialogue's actually playing off of the previous line. In no, a no, way no, that I don't think happens no, no, no. in real life. No, 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 not like that. Like where he'll like in, in like he'll say an idiom, but he won't say the like the last part of the idiom. Ah. Oh. Now I have to go right. back and watch that. So like where we all know sort of what the next word would be, but he doesn't say it because the particular universe that he inhabits, right? They tend to drop off those last words, right? Which it makes sense in context of the universe. But I know that people like Chris Straub, like that drives them nuts because they don't think people would ever talk like that. Well, maybe I they would, that... maybe they wouldn't. Uh, the first time we meet Mal and maybe the first time we meet Kaylee, I had trouble. Like the dialogue sounded unusual because of the, the phrasing. Ah. So I don't know if that was me just eventually getting used to the way they were talking or the actors having a hard time getting back into that way of speaking. Uh, I'm going to guess it's you. Probably. <laughs> and we're just talking about how, you know, when the characters swear, they, they swear in Chinese. And one of the reasons is, you know, just keep your, keeps your rating a little bit lower when you do that. And you can do it on network television. But it just shows that there's a lot of different cultures out in space, which kind of makes a lot of sense, right? You wouldn't expect everything to be uniquely American or Anglo-centric. And that's one of the things that the movie also does. It shows lots of different cultures and religious doctrines and tries to integrate those things into the, the universe that it's showing. Well, that's something that I found really interesting because you do hear them speak English and you hear them speak Chinese in certain situations, but it's definitely not their dominant language. And so I was wondering if the religions in the verse um, followed suit where it was mostly Western Christian religions and then smaller amount of Buddhism or Buddhism based religions at the beginning of the movie when before they do the bank robbery. Mal is asking Zoe kind of just information about the town. And she brings up that all everyone in the town will be at Sunday worship. And so they shouldn't come up against any entanglements getting out of the bank robbery. And it made me think, wow, she's saying that this entire town would be at Sunday worship, which is a very Christian thing. What happened to the Chinese influence over that area? And does the Chinese influence even cover religion. And in fact, the only the only example of Buddhism that I saw in the movie was when the operative and Mal were at Inara's place and she was lighting the sticks of incense in front of a statue of the Buddha. I wonder how much yeah. of that though it comes from just the fact that this is borrowing the trappings of Westerns. The inhabitants of the village have all gone to church on Sunday, right? Like that feels to me, like a fairly Western sort of thing. Yeah. It also feels like a plot device. Like how convenient that no one's there. Yeah. Yeah. In that example, I think it definitely was. Then there's also the focus on belief between the shepherd and Mal. And there's also the focus on sin from the operative. So yeah, I was trying to... I was trying to remember if the word sin was ever used in the TV series, and I don't remember it. And the concept of it is so prevalent in the film that it it was kind of jarring, having recently seen the TV series, to go from that to the film. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I mean, I tried to watch the pilot for Firefly last night. And just to see if I could see any similarities. And I don't think sin was mentioned 
in that episode, but it seems to be something that the operative is fairly obsessed with. He talks to people about their sins before he kills them. For example, the doctor that was experimenting on River, when the operative went to speak with him right before he killed him, he asks him, do you know what your sin is? It's pride, which is true and makes all the sense in the world. But I just found it interesting that here's this guy that kills people. You know, exactly why is he qualified to determine and judge other people's sins? There's this part in Metropolis that um, doesn't exist in all the versions, but it's in the longer version, where there are these statues of death and the seven sins, and they come to life, and they do this little, like, dance macabre. And now, like, with you describing that, Jill, that was what I thought of, where the operative is like death, and he calls on the sins of others before he kills them. So how do you think motivation played a part in what the operative did, and was that related to religion or maybe not? I don't know that his entire motivation for doing everything that he did was religion. Although, you know, he would have had to have had a certain amount of belief in the Alliance to carry out their orders to the the way that he does. If I think about all the things that the operative did and all the people that he killed, there's almost a sense of revenge that he wants to get on Mal for not turning over River, which is funny because Simon's the one who's really harboring River most of the time. Mal, I think to me, not as much. He's just the captain of the ship. But um, I do think I do think religion is probably something that motivates the operative in his life. It seemed to be something that he'd studied, something that he thought a lot about. And something that he really liked his victims to think about. The operative kept on wanting to have these deep philosophical discussions regarding belief and sin. And even asking Mal, you know, do do you know what your sin is? Or, you know, what sin is going on with you? And Mal makes a joke out of it and says, well, right now, if I had to pick one, I'd pick wrath. And then, you know, just like attacks him. It was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I've just gone through all the Firefly transcripts and uh, sin only shows up a couple times. Oh, wow. Okay. Love that you did that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Thanks for doing that. um, Shepard book mentions it once in passing and then it comes up a little bit in the episode with the whorehouse. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. But not in any serious way. More of like, a, you know, I haven't started sinning yet, that kind of thing. I don't think the TV show was as heavy-handed with any kind of religion as much as the movie was. But the movie's not really heavy-handed with religion, right? It's just more the like the operative has his personal code, which could be as much about like, you know... Uh, Bashido as as any religious code. True. I guess because it struck me from the beginning of the movie that both times I watched it, it was the dialogue about religion that really got me excited and wanting to take notes and explore that further. So maybe I was looking for the heavy handedness and it wasn't really there. (laughs) No, I think that I don't know if heavy handed is the way I felt it was presented, but it was noticeable. I, it was a distraction for me to have it in there. Maybe it's because of just the genre being sci-fi. You don't expect religion to be a big part of it. Yeah. Um, you certainly don't expect it to be talked about as much as it was during fight sequences. I, th- I think I'm kind of with Adam, where I didn't get a sense that it was talking about any religion in particular, or even religion at large so much as just an ethos of some sort. A lot of times the operative, I felt like he could have been talking about anything or just his own moral code that may or may not have a religious basis. And he uses the language of talking about sins or specific sins as defined in Christianity. But a lot of times I've just felt like he was a guy who thought he was doing what was best for everyone, the universe. Right. He has a particular worldview and he's dedicated to forwarding that worldview and there is really i mean i'm not saying there isn't religion in the movie there certainly is and they use that language but i guess i would struggle to figure out like okay if it's 
if it's a religion, what religion is it? And I couldn't right, put it's a like, point it's on like that. They use the, it's like they use the language of religion because we associate religion with uh, you know strength of belief, and that's what they're trying to get across here with the operative, is just the strength of his beliefs. Mm. I think that might be something that might have been perhaps subconsciously confusing for me, too, was in the TV series, the religion seemed to be left to the outsiders, the people on the fringes of the verse. Uh, there was the episode where River was almost burnt as a witch. And so that was the kind of superstition type religion. And so to see it associated with someone who was more from the central planets, uh, that was unexpected. And I don't think this bothered me the first time I saw the movie. I don't think I even paid any attention to it. But uh, rewatching it for this, I was perhaps more aware. One of the parts of the movie that I liked the most was when you get that dialogue over the screen between Mal and the operative. And the operative actually admits that he's a horrible person and he's done yes. horrible things. And you get that line about Mal asking him, like, what, you know, what's the place for you? And he's like, I don't I don't have a place in this utopia that i'm trying to create as soon as that happens then i'm done so it's weird that he tries to create this this space that he can't exist in well wait why is that weird do we not just all of us try to build better worlds for for other people like you know our children and things like this but he's a loner he's the man in black mysterious cowboy who rides off into the sunset and so therefore he's not allowed to to care about others i don't think he does care about others but he does the things that he knows are wrong in order to create that, in order to make that happen. So isn't he isn't he just full of crap then? I guess you'd have to judge it on whether he believes that, you know, a little evil outweighs a greater good. So do you all like him as a character? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of did. I remember the first time around really liking him and thinking he was the most compelling part of the movie. Part of that might just be because Chuido Ejiofor is so good in the role. He is really good. He it was like perfect great. casting. Like, I think this was probably the first movie that I really saw him in. Certainly the first yeah. movie that I'm aware that I saw him in. <laughs> I still refer to him as that guy from Serenity. <laughs> so one of the functions of having him in this movie is a foil to Mal and Mal's ethos. He has the chance to save that guy during the bank robbery, decides not to save him, but then does decide to shoot him so that he doesn't have to suffer. Yeah, his concern, though, is with the crew and then also the acceptance that there are better ways to die than other ways. And I thought it I thought it cast a very dark light on Mal. The fact that he didn't let the guy come with him and and physically took him off the their little cruiser thing, whatever it is. Um, like Zoe says, shooting him was like give, giving him a kindness or giving him a mercy, which I thought was true. But I literally had to rewind it and watch it a second time because I just didn't remember Mal being so dark in the series. Are we supposed to assume that that darkness comes from Inara leaving? I never mm-hmm. thought about that, but it it could be. I mean, maybe with the information we have from the series, we might gather that. I'm not sure that's developed very well in the movie or Inara in general. Well, yeah. who was Mel's foil prior to the operative? Would it have been Inara? Yeah, probably. That's true. It does have the line about how, like, were we fighting? No. Well, therefore, it was a trap, right? So if they'd been having a genuine conversation, they would have been fighting with each other. In the TV series, if the opposite of Mal is excessive love, then it's interesting that in the film, the opposite of Mal is excessive death. I mean, we just established, though, that he kills somebody. Although it's, I think the difference there is maybe the reason. Like, the operative's killing for some greater good that he perceives, whereas Mal's killing for mercy. Well, and Mal killed the one person. Yeah, that's true, yeah. The operative laid waste to anybody that had harbored them in the past. So how is he different in the end, though? I mean, he puts his crew in danger when he doesn't need to. He actually does that quite a bit throughout the movie, for as much as he claims to care about the crew at the beginning. But I guess then he's trying to protect River. So he's trying to protect his entire crew. Well, maybe it's not about protecting the crew. Maybe it's about interacting with them. And so he pushes them away emotionally at the beginning, but then he pulls them closer emotionally at the end. Isn't it just that he's concerned with his own self and his immediate crew at the beginning? And then by the end, he's willing to sacrifice himself and everyone's willing to sacrifice themselves for this greater thing, which is the, you know, truth about the Reavers. Yeah, that sounds good. 
throws. To me, this was so clear that I'm slightly confused at the conversation we're having. (laughs) It's because they had so many goals throughout the film that it's hard to keep track of what the ultimate outcome should be. Well, they don't actually have that many goals, right? Like they have the goal of survive. And then that just then that turns into the goal of help River once they're forced into that. And then that just helping River turns into the bigger picture thing, right? So that's why it was so easy to create the synopsis at the beginning of this episode. You got it in the first take. We didn't have to do it over and over again because there was a clear goal every time that they were striving for. Yeah, precisely. And that was sarcasm. (laughs) I don't know what sarcasm you're talking about because... I got it first try. <laughs> One take Gopesky. That's what we call him. While this is a continuation of the series, and there was, I guess, potential for a sequel to this movie, uh, I think Joss Whedon knew that he wouldn't necessarily get the opportunity to do that. And plus, some actors weren't able to commit to a sequel. So there's multiple deaths. So Shepard Book and uh, Wash both die by the end of the film. How did people feel about that? Especially you, Jill not having seen this movie before. Shepard dying seemed to fit within the structure of the story. You know, he was in Haven. He'd harbored the crew in the past. The operative came back and killed everyone who had harbored them. So it made sense for Shepard to die. But when Wash died, I was like, why did you do that? There was no reason why he had to die. Well, it's also the case that Shepard book gets like a, you know, a meaningful death scene. Right, like where he gets the chance to like, you know, say like last words to to Mal and things like that. Right. And it also drives the plot forward. Right. It sets them on the path of like, we're done running. Now we really are going to sacrifice ourselves for the bigger goal because damn it, I'm pissed off. Right. Basically. Yeah. Um, Whereas Wash's death is just a complete shock. Right. And is perhaps much closer to the sort of death we would expect in a similar situation. Right. Of just random senseless death. Um, and it it's a kind of jump out of your seat surprise death. It also. Is. Right. Yeah, it is. I felt like he didn't have to die to keep the story good. Yeah. I mean, am I the only one that thought he didn't really have to die to keep the story moving along? Yeah, I think I, everyone I, I, saw that. Right. Didn't we? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But I think part of the point there is, right, it it does immediately lend a sense to the movie of it's possible that they could all die, right? That they could all go out in a blaze of glory, like a Rogue One situation to borrow from a <laughs> more modern movie, right? Mm-hmm. And that they're making a real sacrifice. And it definitely gives you the feeling that no one is safe. True. If, if even Wash is going to die, like, oh my gosh, right? They could all die. I guess he's the comic relief, too. And then he gets taken out. And I had really hoped the first time I saw it that Zoe would go into like badass mode. And I didn't feel like she did enough. No, Not enough I, to justify Wash's death. I didn't think she went into any particular mode it, the whole time. I mean, I just don't think even at the tombstones or whatever you want to call them, you know, it was the only thing that was different about her. is She wore a dress. There was no emotion or anything like that. I mean, to me, she seems much more reckless in the the fight against the Reavers, like that initial like barricade fight than she perhaps otherwise would have been. True. She like walks forward and is like, you know, just shooting and like not caring. And Jane's like, you know, Zoe, get back here. And I, I don't know for sure if it's because I know the TV series or if the movie actually does establish that Zoe's character is very like considered and calculating and, you know, sensible right and that's not a sensible thing to do at that point Mm, that makes sense yeah she is sensible is a very good word for her so jill i think it came up that you hadn't seen the series or the film because you had talked about your favorite voice actor for disney films (laughs) and and then i was like oh have you seen firefly so can you tell us that story I think we were talking about Moana and we were talking about all the great things in, in that movie. I mean, there are so many great things about that movie. I really like it. My son hates it. <laughs> um, but I was talking about how I couldn't believe they actually got an actor to be Hey, Hey, the Chicken. And he just clucks a few times, you know, he's not like the star of the movie or anything, but he's just the best. He's just so entertaining and hilarious that Hey Hey was my favorite part of Moana. 
Um, and then to find out that it was Alan Tudyk was really, really cool. I knew his name and I knew he's from Texas, but I didn't know Firefly. I didn't understand why people really liked him, except he also did the voice of the droid in Rogue One. But now seeing Firefly, it makes all the sense in the world why people really care about him so much and why he's He's just got such a great character with that. I think everyone wants to connect with that. And then Joss Whedon killed him. I know. I mean, I was so <laughs> pissed. I was really, really mad when he died. Guess he should have agreed to be in a sequel. <laughs> he shouldn't have had so many options. Is that what it was? Uh, in part, yeah. I mean, obviously oh. he didn't have to do it and he didn't or no one knew whether they would get a sequel or not. What did he do instead? I mean, he did voice work for a lot of things. I, well, I mean, it could have been a lot of things. It could have been something that didn't get picked up or, you know, some potential yeah, of something true. that would have been, you know, a couple years down the line or having kids born or who knows what. Fact is, it never happened. <laughs> so death was for nothing. I, the, the biggest problem with that for me was that I would have liked to see Zoe Morn at that moment or have some sort of reaction in the same sort of way that it would have been nice to have some time for the audience to to process it. By the time you actually get that uh, the tombstone scene, it's that's a good like fifteen, maybe even twenty minutes later. And at that point, you're like, "Oh yeah, he died." <laughs> I guess some people did die in this movie. Okay, maybe monsters are that way, but <laughs> the rest of us are fully aware the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, I remember, too, when I saw the movie the first time, I was thinking, like, he's my favorite. And then when he died, I was like, oh, I can't think that anymore. Like, I curse my characters that I like. <laughs> oh. Can we just, just as a complete total aside, there's a special feature on the Moana Blu-ray where um, Alan Tudyk is, they show him doing some of the voice work and where oh, he's nice. like, where he's like doing like the chicken noises. And then at one point looks at the... Uh, the camera and says, yes, I went to Juilliard. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite thing ever. That's awesome. And Adam, I also like that you like Moana. It's a quality film. That's yeah, a good one. It is. It's a great movie. It is. The only other thing I can think about is you want to talk about special effects? No, I want to talk about Nathan Fillion. All right. Let's talk about Nathan Fillion. Bring it up. Nathan Fillion's great. And is it always surprises me on some level that he's not a bigger star. Because I just think he's so good at this, right? Just conveying the emotions of Mal as he goes through the movie. The fact that he can do the the serious drama and the action and the quirky comedy stuff. Like, I'm always... And he's a good-looking guy, right? Like, I'm always surprised that Nathan Fillion's not a bigger star on some level. I don't know if he always makes the right choices. Recent example being The Rookie, which I gave up on after, like, four episodes... I don't even know if it got picked up again, but it shouldn't. Is it and bad? yeah, like he's <laughs> he's always awesome in what he's in, but he doesn't always choose the best thing to be in. I think that Castle was probably his second best behind Firefly. Sure. It's definitely the one that pays the bills. <laughs> yeah. My recommendation of like another film is actually a TV series that Nathan Fillion does a voice in. Um it's a TV show called Big Mouth. It's an animated series. It's on Netflix. And it follows the lives of a few girls and a few boys in middle school navigating relationships and hormones and sex and sex ed and all that kind of stuff. Uh, my favorite character is a, a girl named Missy, voiced by Jenny Slate. And she's obsessed with Nathan Fillion. And so, you know, her hormones are raging and she's imagining Nathan's Fillion's face on a dog and making out with the dog. <laughs> and it's actually Nathan Fillion's voice, you know, <laughs> as this talking dog. And so, you know, I hadn't seen Firefly at the time I'm watching this show, but I, in my mind, I'm like, he's got to be a big star if this cartoon character likes him. So I've, I've always thought of him as a bigger star, I guess, than maybe he is. I mean, I think it's true that he's, you know, reasonably successful on television, right? He's got lots of television credits. I was always slightly surprised that he never, like, made the transition to films. But on the other hand, maybe he was never that interested in making the transition to films. I suppose that's possible. Yeah. yeah I, I do get excited every time I see him. Like, every time he's credited with something, I'm like, oh, it's Nathan Fillion. And, but I don't know if I like him so much as I like the character Mal. 
Like, it's a great character. And in the TV series, I think more than the movie. Not that in the movie it's bad, but just in the in the TV series, it's such a better character. And so that's why I find him appealing. I mean, on the one hand, that might be true. But on the other hand, like, everything I see him in, I'm like, you're great. Like, <laughs> I like Castle at some points almost entirely because of him rather than anything else going on. But particularly in later seasons, right? But, like, he's great in that, you know. Even he has like that role in like the Percy Jackson sequel, right? Where, you know, he's good in that. And he did that, uh, that uncharted fan film. Jill, have you seen Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog? I've never even heard of it. Oh, oh no. You'll love it. It has <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris. Oh, I like him too. What's it called? Dr. Horrible? Yeah, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. It was made during the writer's strike when basically people weren't allowed to make stuff in the film world and so they kind of got together and made that as not a prank but as a gimmick perhaps to uh bypass all of the regulations that were in place about creativity and such oh that makes sense i'll have to look for it uh so let's talk about everyone's overall thoughts about the movie jill did you enjoy the experience I did. I did. Um, you know, I, I said before that River was not one of my favorite characters. And so when I started seeing that the movie was going to focus a lot on her, I was really waiting to be disappointed. That's not to say I didn't find her annoying in certain parts of the movie, because that was very true. But I think for me, the other storyline that I really appreciated was the story of Mal and his belief in himself and knowing what's right and, you know, how he talked at the end of the movie about love and the love of the ship and the love of the crew. I really felt like he kind of went on an emotional journey in this movie. And I really liked seeing that. So I liked the movie for two scenes and Obviously, I didn't like the whole thing. There were parts that I could go and eat a sandwich during and not feel like I'm missing anything. But I love Kaylee the best. She's one of my all-time favorite TV characters. And my two favorite bits with her, she has the line that's about how she had nothing twixt her nethers and that didn't have a battery in over a year. And of course, she delivered it much better. And I crack up with that. Um, I did not like Mal's reaction to it, but I thought that Jane did okay. And I thought that was just a very Kaylee line. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, too, during the shootout, where she was like, well, I'm going to live now in response to um, Simon saying that his biggest regret was that they couldn't be together. I like those parts. But a lot of that's just influenced on me liking the TV show. So I'll say that, yeah, I liked the movie, but it's not as good as the TV show. And I totally sound like someone who's like, well, you should have read the book if you liked the movie. But it did exist. In fairness, it existed as a, a perfectly good TV show prior to the film. Just no one knew it was good at the time. So the, I think this is my third watching of the movie. And this time, I think with such distance from the television show, it was just very apparent to me how much time they spent with exposition. And it just felt a little bit overwhelming. I mean, it, it for the first, I almost felt like 20 minutes of the movie, just establishing these things that I already know. And I know this is my fault. It's not the fault of the movie. I think it's just knowing these characters and where they come from already and just being that feeling a little bit tiresome. And then I also think, you know, Amber, you were just talking about Kaylee and her characterization. And unfortunately, with so many characters, there's only a, you know, you get like one or two personality quirks that get to come out. So if this is the only thing you watched, you'd think that Kaylee is sex obsessed and a little bit sentimental. And that's it. I, I yeah, just said... like the TV show. Well, like the TV show, they like show her as being hyper competent as far as repairing the ship. And you get a little bit of that, but not much. I, I do want to say that her first scene within the fictional chronology of the TV series, and it wasn't the first time we see her on the show, but like the first time she comes into Mel's knowing is because she's sleeping with a guy in well but not sleeping they're having sex um, in the engine just to be clear okay um in the engine room and then the last time we see her she's having sex in the engine room so that was a good full circle oh okay that made me happy but overall i think there's small complaints i still liked it i liked toodle edgy four he's my favorite part of the movie and i enjoyed seeing him again this time so it'd been a few years since i'd seen this although i had seen it a number of times prior um so I went into this trying to 
think of watching it as like a first time viewer, like as someone who hadn't seen the show, like it just came into like Serenity cold, like, you know, how does it establish characters and stuff like that? And so I was trying to watch it with like a little bit more of that critical eye, but I found myself fairly quickly just wrapped up in it and just impressed at how well structured it is some of us were quibbling with like you know the particular type of structure and things like that but it was really impressive to me just how how smoothly for me it felt it moved from one point to the next point to the next like it always makes sense and the only thing that i ever really bothers me was the the last minute like oh i had that nerve cluster moved right and Mm -hmm. everything else i found completely engrossing yeah this this is not a movie that you know i revisited and found myself disappointed by i was like wow this this movie is still very 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 good i think joss whedon did a great job of doing what he needed to do in the movie it's just i think what had to happen might have been a little bit too much again going back to well you have to establish this movie for people who haven't seen it before and that just there's that's going to take a certain amount of time i think in another writer's hands it could have it could have been a complete disaster but i think overall i mean that's true but it also I also thought like it like it helps like remind you of who the characters are. Right. Mm -hmm. And you get like that that initial like honestly gorgeous tracking shot through like the entire ship. That's basically one cut like it starts in the cockpit and it moves its way all the way through the ship until it gets down to like the cargo bay. Right. And you meet like all the characters along the way. I thought was actually handled really well and is also like, you know, visually interesting, too. Right. It's not just a bunch of like static setups. and cuts. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jill, you've watched a movie that we thought you should watch. Now's your opportunity to recommend something to everyone that you think they should watch or experience. Actually, Big Mouth is what I really wanted to recommend to anyone who's listening. It's a hilarious show. It's produced and directed by the comedian Nick Kroll. He was on a show called The League, and then he had his own TV show called The Kroll Show. The the only thing I remember from The Kroll Show is Ghost Bouncers. Oh, I don't even know that one. (laughs) It it was like if you took like the Jersey Shore cast and put them in like one of those Ghost Hunter (laughs) like shows. Oh, nice. Where they have like these like emotional like discussions like two camera and then at one point he's like all right it's time to bounce this ghost (laughs) (laughs) and they're gonna like try and de-haunt the house or whatever oh my god i'm gonna have to look for that (laughs) and that was on the curl show yeah yeah pretty sure that that show was really great um and big mouth is really good too it's got um Jenny Slate, it's got um, John Mulaney, I'm going to say this name wrong, but Jason Mentezokis. Mentezokis. I don't know. Mentezokis, yeah, he's in it. He's. I love that actor. He's so funny without even trying. And it's got Nathan Fillion, so you can't beat that. <laughs> so if you want to be disappointed by a TV series that was canceled after the first season, you should check out Flash Forward. It's actually one of my favorite shows. And it only survived for one season. Uh, it was starring Joseph Fiennes and John Cho and Jack Davenport. He was the guy who was uh, Admiral Norrington in the Pirates of the Caribbean film. And it should have done well, except if you missed an episode, there's no way to catch back up. So that was why it didn't make it. But it's a very good series. It has to do with time travel-y stuff. Um, or if you want to watch a film that is based on a very excellent TV series, I recommend Veronica Mars from 2014. And of, again, like Serenity, it's not as good as the TV series. The first season of the series was much better. But uh, Veronica Mars, I believe you could watch it standalone and have it still make sense without having seen the television series first. Um, on some level, I had uh, difficulty with the recommendation this week just because Serenity is sort of unique, right, in, in the way it approaches its themes and, and carries it off, right? Like, it's, it's, it's hard to think of things that are really like Serenity that much. So when I mentioned this to my wife, she reminded me that's like, I was like, you know, what else is like a, like a sci-fi Western combination, and she was like, oh, well, Briscoe County. So <laughs> yes. so that is that is my recommendation, as I'm going to recommend the TV show The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., which I thoroughly enjoyed as a eight- or nine-year-old. And then 
revisited a few years ago, fully expecting it to be terrible because, you know, eight and nine year olds have terrible taste and was very pleasantly surprised to find out just how like well it held up and how good it was and all the jokes that I'd missed the first time. So wasn't that on Fox originally, too? Yes, that is one of the early Fox shows, I believe, when they were trying to like create their own content. That was one of the ones they came up with. Starring Bruce Campbell as Briscoe County Jr. It's funny because when you you were talking about how great Nathan Fillion is and everything, for some reason, I always think of Bruce Campbell in the same vein. I'm like, yeah, he's just like Bruce Campbell. Like, you're always super happy to see him. And he's yeah. always great, even if the thing he's in sucks. <laughs> or Patrick Warburton. I also put oh, yeah. together. Yeah. So I'm going to recommend the uh, 2010 movie Tucker and Dale versus Evil because Adam successfully predicted what movie i was going to recommend because it has alan tudyk in it and he has a good opportunity to have a leading role which you don't see him in too much if you i mean if you like seeing him as a chicken in moana and he's only in it very briefly then of course you would like this movie where he's in it for the majority of the screen time (laughs) and it's a nice sort of like uh comedy horror film that has a nice inversion that happens right near the beginning you know you're in for a fun time like right off the bat it's a movie that looks dumb, but is way better than you would expect. Oh, yeah. I thought I was going to hate it, and I did not. Yeah, exactly. It was just like, oh, this is on Netflix. Fine. Throw it on. Wait wait a minute. This is actually entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Jill, is there anything Is there anything you'd like to plug? Funny you should ask. <laughs> um, my husband has his own record label called Chicken Ranch Records. And for those of us in Austin, um, we know South by Southwest is coming up. And my husband has a couple of parties that he's throwing. He actually has one party that he's throwing and then his showcase, which is going to be a big party. The day party that he has, it's March 13th. It's at a bar called Hole in the Wall. It's got 24 bands from four continents on three separate stages. And uh, so it's going to be a fantastic day. And the following day, March 14th at 7 p.m., his showcase will be at a club called Valhalla. So um, I hope someone who's listening can make it out and check out all these cool bands. So Jill, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Would like to have you back anytime. Are there any other sci-fi movies based on television shows that you, <laughs> you were itching to watch and just need an excuse? Um, well, I brought up The Wrath of Khan earlier, but... Uh, oh, yeah. Is there no. any Star Trek you haven't seen yet? You could, If you haven't seen Star Trek Beyond, then Adam could force me to watch it. I haven't seen it. That's the that's the last one they put out, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. So yeah, y'all let me know if you guys decide to do that. And I'd love to, I've been meaning to watch that movie for a while. So I'd love to watch it. Oh man, we may actually have to do this. Yeah, I've <laughs> trapped myself. <laughs> and yeah, if you haven't subscribed already to the podcast, please do so. Go to our website. It's pretty easy to find out how to do it from there. It's just on the side of the page. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and still letterboxed. And Facebook, technically. It's just me running the show now. <laughs> <laughs> but I will totally respond to messages if you want to message us through Facebook. So just like our page. Yeah, I should have picked Star Trek Beyond just to highlight how bad your review on Letterboxd of it is. <laughs> how appallingly wrong your Letterboxd review is. It's not a zero. It's not a one or a two. You gave it two and a half out of five. What is wrong with you? <laughs> you had your chance to force me to rewatch it, too, and you missed yeah, it. Yeah, well, when you deliberately only come for two days, right, I feel bad about wasting your time on a movie that I'm making you watch out of spite, Waste, so. Wasting my time on Star Trek Beyond. I see. <laughs> Are we going to be able to continue the podcast? Is this too large of a rift? <laughs> so if I hang up on just you, I wonder what happens. <laughs> but see, this is great. This is the breakup episode. Uh, so, uh, nope, can't, can't do it. I'm still mad at you. Hold no, on. Okay. All right. So the movie Serenity from 2005 ah, is... Ah, uh, no, changed my mind. Mm, Still mad at you. It's the voice, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
triggered a little bit by my voice. Not helping. I mean, Amber can do the synopsis. No, because <laughs> yeah, right. that'll take 25 minutes. Yeah, Adam is still mad at me for calling The Greatest Showman a fairy tale. I'm not mad at you. I'm more impressed at the audacity of your word choice. <laughs> it wasn't mine. I stole it off the internet. That phrase, not the whole synopsis. <laughs> Right. And every child, no, we're to go back to that episode. Every child I've talked to is amazed and appalled that you two didn't think that that was a movie that was intended for kids. Okay. Well, I'm sorry that your terrible movie didn't affect us the way you wanted it to. All I'm saying is that all of your 12 and under demographic have stopped listening to the podcast because you were wrong. That's a shame. <laughs> I all feel like the this is going to be with, the end credit banter. All the people with bad taste have stopped listening. I'm real heartbroken. <laughs>